In an open letter supported by the Millionaires of Humanity, a group of 83 millionaires pleaded for higher taxes on themselves and the super rich to help pay for the COVID-19 recoveries and beyond. Why would a group of people ask to be taxed more? Well, there's evidence throughout the history of our country that in the periods where we had higher taxes on the super wealthy than we have today, we had a robust investment by our government, particularly with regards to education, which led to a highly skilled, educated workforce, which led to higher productivity and higher wages. And you guessed it, when people have access to more money, they spend more and others are able to earn more, delivering a robust economy that maximizes the amount of people that can participate in it. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few of the things that have exacerbated inequality in the U.S. and look at some of the tools at your disposal to help build your own wealth and fix the problem. Welcome to the Good Samaritan Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Jackson. Let's get into episode 13. Welcome to episode 13, another edition of How the Economic Machine Works. I'd like to welcome back our local economist, James Noel. How are you doing today, James? It's a, another episode on the Good Samaritan podcast. Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, we got two, uh, two, two episodes under my belt. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to go. Let's talk. Let's talk some economics. Awesome. We uh, so I actually wanted to kick off today's show. This this show actually got created because of another debate I was having earlier this week, actually about the wealth gap uh, around African Americans, and it kind of got me thinking uh, about just overall inequality in the country, where the country uh, is headed. Uh, so I, I was able to find some uh, some data to kind of reveal where. Uh, where we are as a country and what you know I ultimately think uh, are your tools to really combat it because we're definitely as a country going towards uh, or at least becoming more and more unequal une- uh, as income is distributed throughout our citizens. Uh, a smaller amount of people are gaining more and more and more wealth uh, while large large majorities uh, of the country are um, staying pretty much about the same or even losing some of their wealth or their income uh, are stagnant. So we're going to get into all that today. Um, First to kind of kick it off is the Gini coefficient. So for my listeners out there who might not know what that is, uh, pretty much measures the extent to which distribution of the economy uh, among individuals or households within the economy deviates from a perfect equal distribution. So it's pretty much on a scale of zero to 100. Uh, America sits at a 41.5 with zero being a perfect equal distribution, which you will not find anywhere on the face of this planet, uh, at least in in this universe, not on not on Earth, uh, with perfect inequality uh, getting a score of 100. So we're we're at a 41.5. Typically, the best way you rank um, anything in this kind of a scenario is how you compare against the countries that are on par with you economically. Uh, what you'll what you'll find is is the countries that have a better um, distribution of wealth according to the Gini coefficient, or that are just ahead of us, are Argentina, 
Haiti, uh, Malaysia, and Turkmenistan. Um, we are far off from the likes of Germany, who have a 31.7 Gini coefficient, uh, and the likes of Ukraine, who have as low as a 25 Gini coefficient. Uh, for the country that champions democracy, uh, champions participation by citizens in the overall in economy, we are woefully underperforming when it comes to income distribution across all of our citizens. And a number of reasons why that has trended that way over the last hundred years is particularly with stagnant wages. Uh, you will notice the typical male worker in 1978 uh, made about $48,000. Uh, and the CEO of the company he probably worked at uh, made about $393,000. We fast forward to uh, the years of 2010 in our de current decade. Uh, the typical worker, the same typical male worker makes about $33,000 uh, and their CEO probably makes about $1.1 million in salary. And you'll notice a big shift here uh, in regards to CEO or executive pay uh, over that time period increased by 180 uh, percent where the typical male workers um, salary decreased by 30%. Now, there are a number of reasons why this has happened. Uh, one of them, or a couple of them being globalization, uh, also the advances in technology that we really started to see in the 1980s. But in general, uh, you still notice a, you start to see an unequal distribution uh, of wealth uh, across the country uh, that kind of starts to begin in the, 19, in the 1970s. Also, that what began in the 1970s is just a decline in labor unions. Uh, it pretty much mirrors and is correlated with the share uh, that the middle class earns in income over that time. So as the power of labor unions uh, in our country or in our in our economy started to dwindle, uh, so did the amount of money middle class Americans started to take home. So I'll, I'll actually bring James here on this one because I have a good example of this uh, when I was in my younger working life after I graduated. And I don't know if he had the same experience, but at a recruiting uh, event or maybe not a recruiting event, there was a, a company I was potentially going to work for. And one of the things and it was a management position. And one of the things you got a sense of is there was definitely a culture inside the company to crush any um, beginnings of a labor union being started, uh, potentially. The company, the HR department was tracking the amount of labor unions inside the company, and there was an active offense by the company, particularly around the HR department, to not only stagnate the growth of unions, but to pretty much get rid of them and what they had uh, inside the company. And at the at the time, young kids fresh out of college, you know, I, I almost want to say I was a little brainwashed. I was like, um, everyone I talked to kind of asked about labor unions and they, I mean, labor unions got bashed. Like you, labor unions had become vilified, um, at least in my mind, in the way it was discussed. It was it was bad for the company. It was bad for you as an employee. Labor unions were not something that um, was shown to provide any value. 
coming from the company's perspective. So, James, I don't know if anything like that ever happened to you, uh, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it if you had something like that. Yeah. So just kind of talking about the unions, obviously, you know, coming out of college, I didn't uh, there wasn't a big, um, you know, eye opening moment from, a you know, from, a you know, the company's perspective on that. Uh, but I, I can talk personally, um, you know, when I was in high school, I actually worked for, you know, um, a distribution company uh, that actually had a union in it. Um, and at the time, um, you know, me being young, I just, you know, that, that was the thing you were told, hey, you're here. This is a part of this, um, you know, employment opportunity here. And this is to protect you. Um, and that we represent you in all facets, uh, you know, from, from a legal standpoint, from contractual standpoint, from a, a compensation standpoint. And so uh, at 18, I, I didn't know any better. I just paid the dues and, you know, moved <laughs> on. Um, but w- one of the things that, um, you know, you I think, you know, just just to kind of talk to it slightly is, you know, back when companies were taking advantage of people putting children to work, you know, it made sense. And I think, you know, not, not taking a defense of the company's yeah. perspective, but I think the federal laws, I think business practices, I think the way culture is cultivated nowadays in companies, uh, there's not a need for a union. So I think there's two aspects happening here from a corporate perspective of, hey, we are making strides to make an environment that we don't need to have a us versus them type of uh, mentality, which is obviously stifles growth and affects, you know, the overall bottom line of, you know, that company because there's somebody else trying to dictate how the workforce is actually operating. Um, and then the, obviously there's money being made by these unions. You know, they don't want to lose that income and uh, that growth, um, you know. I mean, I know, you know, a little controversial, but, you know, you know, where's Jimmy Hoffa? You know what I mean? So, um, you know, it, it's just one of those things that I think you got to look at the what has changed from the, the, the perspective of how business operate when unions were obviously highly coveted, highly sought after and, and hitting to the, you know, nowadays where it's just like, OK, hey, do we really need that? You know? It it brings up a good question, which we won't do in this show. Is that you actually gave me another idea to to dig into a labor union some more? But as I for today's episode, to just take the the data for what it says, um, even though correlation does not equal causation, there's definitely a high correlation with the decline of unions since the 1970s to today that pretty much mirrors the decline in the share of the middle class's income uh, from those companies. And what what we all know is is that the growth um, in the country has been phenomenal uh, since the 70s. You had the tech booms that occurred in the the following decades. Um, And it appeared, and I won't even say it appears, the data shows uh, that the middle class hasn't earned their fair share Uh, of that growth. And most of that growth has gone into uh, the pockets of a few wealthy uh, individuals. But be that as as it may, uh, we'll definitely, uh, thank you for the idea, we'll definitely look into uh, the labor movement in America and definitely unions in America 
because it it's uh, definitely a, a discussion that needs to be had as well. Um, but in addition, as we kind of look at overall inequality, um, the peak years for income for the top 1% uh, were in 1928, which is prior to a crash, uh, and 2007, which is also a year prior, <laughs> prior to the Great Recession, uh, in which the top 1% um, of individuals in our country uh, took home 23% of the overall income. Uh, in addition, you've heard me talk on other shows, uh, you know, 400 people in America have more wealth than the bottom half of people in the U.S. Uh, so let me say this again. 400 people in America have more wealth than the combined 150 million Americans uh, in the country, uh, which is pretty much the has been the poster a note stat for inequality in the country that has only uh, started to expand. I'm sure you've probably seen plenty of articles out there about, you know, billionaires uh, with all the growth that ha that happens. Billionaires take anywhere between 60 to 80 percent of the growth uh, in any in any industry. So in a nutshell, as we talked before, the U.S. economy is based on consumer spending. Uh, it is 70 percent of the economy itself. Uh, this means the middle class is the steam engine that that keeps our economy pumping, as we've talked before. Uh, but overall, if if the the wealthy continue to absorb the majority of the growth and the money that flows through our economy in such large amounts, uh, as I just mentioned, it being 23 percent of the overall income just prior to 2007, uh, these are associated with crashes in the economy just because there's not enough money uh, making it to other parts of the economy. When I say other parts, I particularly mean the middle class, the working class. If there's not enough money in those parts of our economy. Then if people don't have that money to spend, then the economy can't continue to function over the long term in a, you know, in a growth trajectory, which is why you, you pretty much have ended up in a crash over the decade in those two instances. Yeah, and, and the funny thing here also, too, is obviously this has been a very um, polarizing debate in terms of, you know, the political candidates that are running for office. Um, yeah. And it's it's constantly being brought up in every election cycle. And uh, the, the problem with that wealth gap conversation is, you know, one, it's going to it is going to take some political influence and two, some a lot of institutional and policy changes. Um, and then the last thing no one ever wants to bring up or think about is time. So how yeah. much time is it going to take? Like the things that might be instituted in you and I, you know, our lifetime, we're not, we might not even benefit from. Like it'd yeah. be our kids, kids that would be benefiting from some of these changes uh, that have to be put in place. Um, and so, you know, looking at that overall, uh, I definitely think that, you know, there's a, a bigger conversation in terms of, everybody within a country then how do you actually you know close that gap uh, you know lower our Gini coefficient if you will yeah. but but I think it, what has to really be talked about which is you know probably more specific to each individual is okay what can I do yeah like, what, what is that one thing that I can do that can kind of help me now because uh, you know you know if I could give myself a million dollars then <laughs> you know I, I'm doing it 
But doing yeah. that out there, the very small few can you know throw your throw your hat in the lottery bucket. So <laughs> I don't I don't know how what's your likely chances of getting that million dollars, but <laughs> yeah. Now you make a great point. I would say. You know, the, the whole premise of this podcast is to focus on what you can control, uh, whether you're a woman, whether you're a minority, uh, whether you come from the working class, whether you grew up poor, uh, whether you grew up middle class, wherever you come from, the system, I, won't, I don't want to use the term rigged, but there are obstacles in your way, whether you're black or you're, you know, white or whether you can get the same amount of pay when you go out into the into the marketplace. Like, yes, those inequities in our economy are there um, and you can't combat those inequities. And I think the, the great point for for James to mention is sometimes it takes time. The civil rights movement took a lot of t- a lot of time uh, just to get to the point where you get policy enacted where, OK, Y'all, y'all black folks over there, y'all equal to, you know, that it took a lot of work and a lot of time. What can you do from a financial perspective um, to, you know, continue to build your own wealth, even though you are facing those inequities that make time to may take time to, you know, be smoothed over um, or made or made equal. And I would say the first thing you should start there is simple enough. The beauty about being in a democratic republic as uh, you have the right to vote, and if you're not exercising your right to vote, uh, then there, there's nothing to be said about the inequalities that are happening uh, from a perspective where, uh, for example, the, the black median income is only forty-one thousand dollars per the data from 2018, but for all people, it's about sixty thousand uh, dollars. So we do know that there are some uh, systemic issues in there that are related to racism. Uh, but you still have the opportunity to focus on what you can do with the, the the resources that you have to better your situation. There's still opportunity for you is the thing I would I would mention. And I'd, I'd let James, if he has anything to add on there, I have a great example to, to discuss why that's important. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, 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 one, one of the things I'm just what, what comes to mind yeah. um also, too, when we talk about you, you hit something that was really yeah. you know important in terms of the voting. Um, uh, it's all about consistency too. Yeah. So we can't look at just you can't look at one election cycle and think that well this policy seems great. Let me vote for this candidate that's going to help enact that. It's going to take uh, you looking at it from a you know a broader uh, uh, spectrum, if you will. Like we yeah, yes. The person in the Oval Office needs to be aligned on, you know, these values or this, this the specific direction that we need to go into. But also we gotta look at we gotta look at the, the you know the House of Representatives. We gotta look at the Senate. You know yeah. that that those election cycles come up a little more frequently. Um, and what is the policy of, of those you know either body you want to identify with, uh, state and local? Um, I think are are crucial too uh, in terms of some of the local economics. Uh, that, that play out and then that, that actually affect you say tax rates you know property uh, taxes um, you know and things of the like so uh, just yeah. the, my only add on there is just like hey it's more than just one election cycle it's not just about the person in the Oval Office we gotta look at this from end to end it has to be consistent um, you know from election cycle to election cycle whether it be for the presidency you know 
of Congress. Yep. Yeah. Congress and state and local. And uh, it's a uh, and I I, I want to be clear here because it when it comes to your personal financial well being and wealth, you are the master of that fate. No matter who's in office, no matter who the senator is, no matter who the mayor is or your city, at the end of the day, what matters more, not that the prior does not matter, it's not an either or. I think you always you have to have both. If you want to maximize your opportunity, you have to vote, you have to be a part of the system. But while that works itself out, <laughs> while that works itself out, what can you do every two weeks when your paycheck comes in to better your situation? The, the, the point of this podcast is to focus much more on that piece of it. Um, what can you do with the money that you make that you go out and bust your tail for every day to help support yourself, your family? How do you get your piece of the economy and I would say it revolves around four things. Um, the first thing being you gotta live below your means. I think you guys have heard me talk about that on the on the podcast before. Um, even against the huge inequities and inequality that we've started to see in our economy, you still have a sword in the fight though. You still have a sword in the fight. No matter no matter how unfair it may seem, uh, as long as you stay disciplined and stay consistent um, and think about how do you how do you live below your means? I think we as Americans have an addiction to to having it all right now, today, as soon as the check comes in, it goes out. And a lot of times we don't know where that money went. And, and just add on to um when you we kind of alluded to this in the previous podcast and we um uh we talked about um you know not just living below your means but also yeah. you know not taking on more debt yeah so you like you said just spending all the money you know that comes in once you get paid but obviously once you don't have any money what's the next step you you got to start yeah. you know pulling out that credit card to get you know yeah. um uh, meet those needs because you know human needs you know human wants are insatiable you know it's going to constantly grow or constantly be a thing there but i do believe that you know debt is a part of this too so um you know you can again you spend but you're going to spend in multiple areas so i think that's another thing that has to be controlled as well as you know how much debt you're taking on which obviously eventually causes some type of you know pull from your finances you know in a way that you know causes you to you know not have that money and continue that cycle yeah no we definitely know how we uh how we feel about debt on this on this podcast on this podcast um it's as we talked about amortization before i think uh jp morgan chase as you talk about banks they i think they had a 30 billion dollar windfall last year uh, and the, if you don't know, the way that banks make money is um, they it's a it's a it's a cycle. But pretty much they get money from the Federal Reserve. We talked before and lend that money uh, out to commercial banks who then lend it to you. And pretty much if you don't keep an eye on your interest versus principal payments, what you'll find out is, is that you're giving most of your money away to those lenders who lend you. Than you cash, so debt's always going to be a 
a thing we want to manage and for the most part stay away from in certain instances. Um, but as we talk about living below your means, uh, there's another book I'm going to highlight uh, and we're going to actually talk about some of the stats from there and talk about what you can do and kind of think about uh, your life. Uh, one of the big things I preach on this show is emulate those you want to be like. So if you want to be a millionaire, what is it that millionaires do? So there's, there are a couple great books I actually will recommend. Uh, the first that I, the first being Everyday Millionaires by Chris Hogan. Uh, it's actually a rehashing of the similar book or same uh, style book from about 20 years ago called The uh, Millionaire Next Door. Uh, pretty much what they do is is they the authors uh, survey over 10,000 millionaires to really dig into the habits of you know, how did they really build this wealth? Where did they really come from? Um, and how did they get started? And I think one of the, a couple of, a couple of nuggets you'll find in there is uh, millionaires come from all walks of life. They come from the working class, the middle class, uh, upper middle class. They're of all races and ethnicities. Uh, they're from a number of different industries or a number of different uh, professions. And, uh, Actually, I'm going to kick it back to James here because there, there are really five attributes uh, that are detailed in the book ab about what they find from interviewing all of these millionaires and what we think uh, makes them successful. Yeah. So just kind of, you know, high level, just to sum it up from what the what the, uh, you know, the millionaires next door is talking about is uh, some behaviors, some key behaviors that uh, these individuals uh, uh, you know, have ingrained in themselves and, and, and they, you know, they follow as, you know, you know, they are as follow, you know, uh, it's all about taking personal responsibility, uh, you know, having extreme ownership in every, any and everything that they do. So practice intentionality. So, uh, you got to set your intentions in order to achieve those things, uh, that, that you're seeking, um, you know, they're goal oriented. So everything's about putting those timelines together and, and those specific milestones to achieve. Um, they're hard workers, so that it's all about work ethic. You know, they're gonna they're gonna push through and and not you know take breaks and, and play around a lot. You know, so as you're saying, you work hard, you play hard. Uh, but they're definitely really focused on their on their work, uh, and then they're consistent. So you gotta definitely be consistent uh, with with respect to all these the, the four previous uh, you know goals. So um, it, it's really interesting that. You know, it's kind of simple in nature, but, you know, these are the things that have set every, you know, those who are millionaires, uh, you know, away from those who are. So you make a great, there's a great point in what those attributes um, speak to. And as we talked about, you know, living below your means, these five things have nothing to do with how much money you start with, uh, where you come from, what you look like. Uh, these are just all behaviors. So living below your means bring it up because there's a level of intentionality about it so you know you're being intentional about uh budgeting and what kind of lifestyle you're living and what kind of goal you're building towards you know and you take personal responsibility for that regardless of you know the broader issues of inequality that are happening in our country uh, that can be addressed in a certain way here you still have to take 
personal responsibility. Any a millionaire, based on this survey, will tell you no matter, like I said before, no matter who's in office, it's still a personal responsibility that you have to take upon yourself to build this path forward for you. Uh, so there are a number of stats in this book and really phenomenal. And I'm going to give you some there that refer specifically to living below your means and why you should consider it. Um, the first one being it took the average millionaire 10.2 years to pay off their mortgage um, compared to, you know, 67 percent of them living in homes with paid off mortgages. Uh, so kind of think about that. The average uh, the the most used mortgage or the most loan um, financing used in America today is a 30 year mortgage. Uh, pretty much 90, I believe 90% of all uh, loans in regards to mortgages are termed 30 years. And the average millionaire pays off their home in 10 years. Um, there's a level of intentional, um, um, there's a level of intentional, you know, focus on not being in that kind of debt and not being indebted that long, even though you might have gotten a 30 year term or a 15 year term or whatever your term is. You had to be intentional to pay off your home in a, in a decade, especially on today's prices, no matter what part of the country you are in. Uh, that's an intentional level of of uh, focus that you're you're participating in. Yeah. And just hitting on another one of those those, those key yeah. characteristics, you know, it's goal oriented. So, yeah. hey, I, we got this 30 year loan. Uh, we definitely under, you know, looking at the amortization schedule. Yeah. Hey, I, we're going to pay double what we, you know, this, we bought this house for, uh, yeah. like to save a little bit of that cash. So let, let's try to cut this down by X amount of years, you know, whatever that is. And obviously that relief allows you now to take that, that excess income, um, and start, you know, buying other assets, uh, that actually generate income. Or, you know, or bring you passive income, yeah. if you will, and, and put you in a better position. So you couple that with another stat that they find from doing this survey is a third of millionaires live in a zip code where home values are below the national average, with the national average around this time was about $205,000 or less. Um, just I'm try, as I try to put this into perspective for you, Living below your means means you make, no matter what you make, if you're making $40,000, $50,000, you have to be intentional with making the decision to buy a home that fits your lifestyle and your goals uh, in this particular example. And a third of millionaires live in $205,000 homes. They're not... You know, they're not these million dollar homes that you see on TV. They're not eight hundred thousand dollar homes. They're not five hundred thousand uh, dollar homes. And though our perspective is, it's like, oh, if you, you know, if you live in a big house and you drive a nice car, when I say nice, you're driving a luxury vehicle. Um, you tend to associate that with millionaires, but you have no basis for thinking that. And what I'm presenting to you is data uh, that this is actually what millionaires do. Millionaires, you know, also um, save more than 10% of their incomes throughout their working years. Uh, I've said on this show to be much more aggressive than that. Go for 30%. Go for as much as you can that you feel that you can maintain your lifestyle, but invest aggressively. Uh, the reason why I suggest that is because millionaires do it. Um, 
emulate those you want to be like. If you want to be a millionaire, minimum requirements is save ten percent of your save percent ten percent of your income uh, and allow that to be invested. And even a bigger uh, the uh, the most uh, standing out um, stat I'm going to give you right now before we we transition to the next point. I want you guys to to think about. Uh, is a third of millionaires never had a six-figure household income uh, in a single working year. So only 31% of them averaged $100,000 household income in a single year, only 31%, and only 7% averaged over $200,000 household income uh, over the course of their entire careers. And the thing that really sticks out here is you don't have to make a whole bunch of money to be a millionaire. It's not it's not so much about bringing in amples and amples amounts of cash, because if you're if your budgeting is off, if you're if you just don't under if you just don't understand what it means to build assets or you don't understand how debt really prevents you from building wealth. It doesn't matter how much money that you make uh, if you're throwing it away every time every check that you get and that's that's the thing i really want to come across is when you're thinking about living below your means is so you can have access to capital uh, that you can invest in other assets whether it be stocks and bonds whether it be uh, real estate whether it be opening a business whether it be investing in a side hustle whether it be investing in your education um, which then can lead to you being able to generate you know more cash for yourself or more wealth uh, for yourself M millionaires are intentional about what they do with with their funds yeah exactly <laughs> no but here, here, here's, here's something cool here's something cool about yeah. everything you just kind of laid out there with, with the facts so so it's all, it's all about your mindset it's all about uh the way you think you know kind of unrelated i know we kind of yeah. use the house as a yeah uh or you know housing debt as a good example but someone like mark cuban right yeah so he picked the university in indiana because one, based off of the cost, which it was it, with respect to the cost and the quality of education, it made the most sense for him. So it wasn't yeah. even just one area. It was like every area of him, you know, of every decision he's made to get him where he's at to where he's now a billionaire it resulted in a behavior like, hey, I know I need to go get my degree. I want a business degree. All right. I need to not pay an, you know, a large amount of money and get myself so far in debt that once I get out that I'm all I'm going to be doing is paying this money back for something I really wanted. So it, it's just cool that we're kind of highlighting these points and, you know, we're talking through these things, but it, you can, you can analyze any wealthy individual out there and see these things played out in every decision they made in their life. So how do people build wealth? The other tool at your disposal is really think about investing early and often. Uh, compound interest is the key. Uh, I actually have a, a good example of this. If we were discussing, you know, some of the inequalities, we actually discussed uh, some of the racial inequality when it comes to income. Um, according to the the uh, stats from 2018, uh, African-American median income is about forty one thousand dollars compared to the uh, all races being about sixty two thousand dollars. And again, the point of the podcast is the, to be self uh, accountable uh, and self-responsible and intentional. Yes, we know that the inequality is there and there are inequalities in the economy. 
Uh, but this is more sort of focused on what you can do. So even at a, uh, a $41,000 um, income uh, for, for African-Americans, particularly in our country, still, if you invest 15% of your income beginning at 25 uh, for the next 30 years, so say till a, until you're about 55, uh, in just the S&P 500, we're not talking about buying individual stocks. We're not talking about betting on Bitcoin. We're not, we're not talking about any of the aggressive uh, um, stocks that you might find. But just the S&P 500, which is the top 500 companies, uh, according to Standard & Poor's in America, um, over a 30-year period, their return rate is about 12% historically of the S&P 500. So for this example, I actually reduce it to 8%. Uh, to be a little more conservative. Uh, but, the, but at the end of that, even if you're just making $41,000 and you invest 15% of your income, uh, you're going to come out to about $766,000 as a, as a nest egg uh, by the time you're 55. On a $41,000 income, this is still pretty substantial. Uh, and what I would say is a what we would call part of the American dream, though it has been... Um, it has been in a bit of decline uh, since the 1970s. There's still opportunity if you're willing uh, to be intentional about uh, your saving habits. Uh, if we compare that compared to the $61,000 median income for all Americans uh, over the same time period, the same 8% growth rate, uh, you're still looking at about $1.1 million in your, in your employee-sponsored plan uh, if you just put aside 15% of your income into your into your retirement account. And what we do know is, is that the majority of Americans still are not investing uh, and participating in their employer sponsored plans, uh, which they also get free money when they're when they're offered the opportunity to match. Uh, so it, it brings me to the, the overall point of really focusing on improving your financial literacy is where I think the broad uh, opportunity is for individual citizens uh, in our country. Though that there are uh, rig rigid parts of the system that are unequal and are unfair uh, to all of us as a whole, uh, when you look at it from a class position, uh, but even when it comes to disparities, when it comes, when it comes to race. Uh, but if you understand that, uh, you still have the impact. You still can make an impact on your financial situ situation and can make wealth. Uh, because as I mentioned before, uh, millionaires come from every walks of life. Uh, they come from all kinds of income backgrounds. You don't need to make a whole lot of money uh, to become a millionaire if you're willing to invest early uh, and often. Because uh, even, even if you're making a teacher salary, which here in DFW is about, I believe, fifty-five dollars to $60,000. Being consistent and in investing uh, in your employee-sponsored plan, you're still going to have a million dollars at the end of the day. So financial literacy is the, the broad uh, opportunity I see here for all people in America. Uh, because once you have money, the question is, is... What do you do with it? Um, we talked about budgeting, and I would encourage you to go listen to the self-assessment uh, in the self-management 
uh, podcast of this show because at the end of the day, money is passing through your hands. We talked about um, the buying power of certain groups in the country, but then when you compare that against the actual median uh, value of their net worth, you kind of say, hey, what's going on here? You have a you know, one a particular group might have one point one trillion dollars worth of buying power, uh, but their median uh, net worth for the country is only eleven thousand eleven thousand uh, dollars. That means a lot of money is passing through that group's hands, but it's going elsewhere. It's not uh, building wealth uh, for that group in particular. So I'd pass it back to James. And, you know, what. What do you think about financial literacy? Is there any any other uh, things you would offer on, on how to improve? So yeah. in terms of financial literacy, I just want to say I think you hit the nail with the hammer. I think um, uh, it's, it's easy to say, like, you know, tomorrow, you know, if I was a, you know, 18-year-old kid fresh out of high school and you just handed me $100,000, the likelihood of me actually investing it and growing my wealth um it's gonna be possible slim to none unless I unless I'm equipped with the knowledge of what to do with that money. Um, so I, I definitely think you know knowledge is power and key to the the effective change that you need. You know, the more you know, the more you understand, the more you know those behaviors will change, which goes back to you know those those key things we talked about from behaviors. You know, of of those millionaires, and and one thing to note, you know, there is that you know it's not nothing magical. It's not nothing, you know, no calculus based formulation that is gonna bring you bring in the dollars. It's just about hey, you know, being responsible, being intentional, setting your goals, working hard, and you know, staying consistent, you know, all around. So, um, so so you know, in short, I think it's it's a it's a must. Uh, especially in our communities, especially with the up-and-coming generation, uh, to truly understand um, the impact of, you know, you know, accumulating assets, investing their money wisely is going to have on their future. Um, and just to kind of, you know, add a few other, you know, two other points, or one more point, sorry, uh, you, you alluded to it at the beginning, you know, get involved in the political process because it's also these policies, um, you know, you know, when we talked about closing the wealth gap, you know, it's going to take, a, you know, some political change as well um, at all levels, state, local and federal uh, to help, you know, create some change for everybody here. So um, just making sure that we're staying in front of everything and, you know, in, in multiple fronts, I think is going to be key overall. Very final point, I think, it, to make is. You know, any as I've kind of talked through today's show, like any quality is going to be there. The system is going to be there uh, that doesn't fairly give everyone the opportunity. Uh, but you also still live in a country that does provide opportunity of what we what we call poverty uh, in America. A forty thousand dollar a year income uh, is actually in the tops of the world. Uh, you you if you can focus on what you can do. You can go a lot further in this country uh, than if you were born in poverty and in many other places uh, in the world. So if you can just grab on to that, that little bit of opportunity that is allowed uh, in this country and you can be, as James said, consistent and disciplined, intentional with it. You can go places you never thought imagined if you're willing to uh, make the commitment uh, and the sacrifice uh, to get there. Yeah. 
this show? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, a good point to land on. Uh, as always, uh, no matter where you are in your financial journey, uh, always take the time to be a good Samaritan. Uh, check us out on uh, Instagram. We're at the Good Samaritan Podcast uh, to get some tidbits there, and hopefully we'll have some new media coming for you guys soon, shortly. Peace.